Welcome back to the Wizards of Ecom podcast. This is episode number 248. My name is Carlos Alvarez and I'll be your host for the show. On today's episode, I have Kyle Lafon, a successful uh, seller and founder of the uh, American Providence. Welcome to the show, Kyle. Hey, Carlos. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Absolutely. I hope I got the last name right. I tried to do the whole LinkedIn pronunciation and... There you go. It's uh, a little French Canadian, but it works for me. All right. Um... Uh, on today's show, I, I want to chat about some of the uh, some of the journeys of your brand. You know how you succeeded on three fronts: uh, brick and mortar, Shopify, and Amazon. Um, and I'll just put Amazon as the name of you know third party uh, channels or platforms, um, as well as how you got your product into thousands of brick and mortar stores. Which uh, that's a, that's a big number. Most people yeah. never do one. So I've been. Uh, blessed with the advantage of having a little ability to do some like background checking and like checking out some of this cool stuff that you're doing. Uh, I know we're going to have a, a future episode talking about a completely unrelated topic, but there there's a good tie in uh, on how it happens. But um, I know you used to be a farmer or I don't know if it's past tense, but you used to be a farmer. You also used to be and for some reason, I can't stop thinking about Breaking Bad here, but I, I, like a middle-aged, uh, uh, not a middle-aged, a middle school, <laughs> high school science teacher. So I can't help but, you know, conjure up images of my, my favorite show there. Um, yep. Can you talk to me about how farming and teaching or specifically teaching science, if at all, like how it helped you get to your product and this brand and how you went from teacher, which forgive me, doesn't for me doesn't really fit with, you know, arch, successful entrepreneur, seven figure business, right? Like yep. how, how did that transition happen? How did you get into the product? How did you go from farming and teaching to American Providence? Yeah, uh, great questions. And uh, and tell you what, it's it's all this this crazy story. Um, I didn't even challenge to tell it myself for crying out loud, but I think going back to my farming uh, background and my map bringing, uh, so I'm very fortunate. I now own my fourth generation family farm here in Wisconsin. So it's 120 acres of pretty much pure heaven. Um, my grandfather, he was able to raise a family of six kids, milking 40 cows. That is unheard of today uh, with the way the commodity prices have gone and the way the factory farming has, has come to be dominant. But when I was growing up during the summertime, my mom would bring us out here and drop us off and we'd work with my grandfather. And that experience, seeing how he handled his business, his farm. A lot of folks don't realize it, but family farmers, they are the original entrepreneurs. You know, you have no one else you can rely on. Everything you have to do, you have to do on your own. My grandfather was a wonderful example because he never had anything brand spanking new until the last truck he finally bought. He finally treated himself. Otherwise, everything he had on his farm was reused, refurbished, recycled, used. I mean, you name it. I don't ever remember anything here being brand spanking new. Everything was kind of hobbled together. We even have a, an old shed out here that uh, was actually built with eight or nine other sheds. So my grandfather at some point went out and picked up lumber and basically from sheds that were dilapidated and fallen down or in disrepair, brought the pieces back here and put together a new shed with those pieces. Um, so yeah, just seeing that over and over again, and that thought, of course, in my, my growing up and my formative years, like that really gave me this kind of urge to do my own thing, uh, be my own boss and kind of, you know, set my own mark. So my grandfather and my grandmother, for that, for that, uh, for that matter, were wonderful examples of what it means to be an entrepreneur to really go at it, do it yourself. Um, the importance of having people that you can rely on. For them, it was their kids, of course. Uh, for me, it's my team. Realizing that the most important thing that I can do as an entrepreneur is to put together a great team, find people who are more intelligent and talented than I am, and put them in a position where they can succeed. And then finally, getting out of the way and letting them do their thing and have their own autonomy. Um, so again, seeing my grandfather and, and how he treated this farm, that really inspired me to, to do what I'm doing today. Um, the whole teaching aspect, that's a funny story as well. Um, so a lot of folks in my family, alongside being farmers, are also teachers. I don't know if there's any type of link there or whatever, but uh, it's kind of fun to think of. And uh, when I was teaching in the middle school environment, especially, Throughout all my teacher education programs, no one ever told me that kids going through puberty, they stink. They smell terrible. Um, I don't care if it's <laughs> boys, girls, you name it, between BO and hormones and sporting equipment and shoes and lunches and backpacks and everything else. Those kids are just ripe. Um, so I remember most mornings in my hallway, I have to walk through just this gross chemical fog of these very, you know, 
well-known name brand body sprays. And uh, I remember one morning I'm walking down my hallway and uh, I felt my throat start tightening up. And I thought, wow, there's something pretty noxious in that canister. So I looked at the back panel of this name brand body spray. And uh, the first thing that was alarming was just how long the ingredient list was. It was crazy. Um, second thing was with multiple science degrees in the background I had in teaching, I could only identify about a third of the ingredients in that product. And I thought, wow, if I know so little about this product, uh, my kids and their parents probably don't know much beyond that. Um, this is potentially very dangerous. And so at that point, kind of a light bulb went off and I made up this project on the spot where I told my kids, hey, tomorrow, I want you to bring in your favorite cosmetic product, personal care product. I don't care what it is. We're going to do the research. We're going to find out what all these harmful ingredients are. And I tell you what, I'm going to teach you how to make your own with minimal ingredients and better ingredients so that you don't have to rely on the stuff that, you know, corporate America is pushing down your throats. So that's kind of the whole origin story. Um, I will admit that first year in class, we made a bunch of garbage. I mean, it was terrible. But uh, kind of the silver lining there was I had kids I wouldn't have in class for another year or two that would catch me at lunch before school, after lunch and say, hey, Mr. LaFont, can we make deodorant? Absolutely. In middle school, it's a great project. It's hands-on. It's real world. It's applicable. So the next couple of years after that, you know, I had six, seven sections a day and we're making all this stuff. And uh, I actually did all of my R&D while I was teaching. So while I was teaching, I developed about 30 different deodorant formulations and finally picked out one that I really liked. And that's what we ran with to, uh, to launch American Providence. That is wild. So to be clear, when you first, you know, encountered the body odor and uh, I don't know if the, the noxious, uh, uh, smells were similar to like what I'll have, like my deodorant smells different than my cologne, that my shampoo, like my, it, it drives me nuts, but like yep. what you couldn't identify the ingredients. So you get this idea to do a fun project in the class at that point, there is no, this could potentially be a business. I can sell this on the side. There's nothing like that. Correct. When, when do you start thinking of the idea that, you know, all these kids are asking me about it? Like, how does it leap from, you know, a lab to let's sell something? Yeah, so there's a couple of different uh, explanations for that. Number one, just seeing how passionate and energized those kids were, realizing that, holy cow, they really like this stuff. There might be a potential market for this. And then there are some political factors as well. You know, here in Wisconsin, where I'm from, uh, we were going through this whole kind of upheaval and kind of public discord against teachers at that point. And uh, at that point, I was coming up on five years teaching. And here in the state of Wisconsin, you have to do what's called a PDP, Professional Development Plan. At least at that point, you did, which uh, was a huge undertaking, took most folks an entire summer, maybe even an entire year to put together. And I thought, you know, I'm not going to put together this plan just to justify my position and justify my, my teaching style. Um, I'm going to take this opportunity. I'm going to write a business plan instead. Um, so I was kind of pushed into it by the, the politics of the time and just kind of this, uh, this real negativity towards teachers, which unfortunately persists today. I think looking back the last two, three years, um, if I were to have maintained and kept on teaching, I don't know if I could have done that pandemic. You know, bless their hearts. Teachers are wonderful folks. Anyone, everyone that takes that on. But uh, throughout the course of the past few years, I don't know if I could have done it. That is wild. I, I noticed while we have a, we have a visitor we have to introduce on the show. Is that a British short hair cat? If it is, it's going to be wild because my my co-host. A, is that a British short hair? I don't even know. That's a farm cat. Okay. <laughs> so, oh. <laughs> then Noemi will be mad that I that I confused the farm cat for her British short hair, but. Anyhow, that's good. The, that that is wild. So, your significant others, your friends, your family at this time, like you, how did that go? Like you go from like farming, which seems pretty stable. Uh, I don't know if it is or not, but it seems stable. Teaching seems very stable. Business not stable. Like, what did you have a lot of support? I did, um, which was great. And for me at that point. You're right. Everything I had done up to that point was pretty stable. And I was looking to take a risk. Um, you know, at that point, I started reading books about entrepreneurship and um, different figures out there that have been very successful and how, you know, it never comes easy. If it came easy, everyone would do it, right? You have to be willing to take a risk and put it on the line. And at that point in my life, um, I had decided that the timing was right. You know, timing is really never right. But I was at a point where I wanted to be aggressive and, and do something and see if I, I couldn't do something very, very special. 
Um, and so for me, uh, it just kind of all came together. And I really have no better way to explain it. And people ask me all the time, when is the right time to start a business? I don't know. It's just something that you feel in your gut. And it just, it just resonates. And for me, I started working on that business plan and I could not stop. I kept on writing and writing and revising and talking to friends and mentors. Everyone was really supportive. Um, what I did when I made my first uh, kind of trial products, I gave them out to all my friends and family. And the feedback was absolutely phenomenal. I had folks that would catch me on the street or call me or text me or shoot me an email saying, hey, man, the stuff that you gave me at the holiday party, that's better than anything I've bought in a store in years. You know, are you going to do something with this? So that kind of got the wheels turning as well. And then finally, uh, this was before I actually owned the farm. Um, I asked my mom, who was very supportive. She was a wonderful woman. And uh, I asked her, hey, you know, one of grandpa's old machine sheds has been sitting dormant for a few years. Um, would you mind if I renovated it and made that uh, a manufacturing or warehouse space? And she was more than gracious and said, yes. So I actually did the original build out myself. So that was about six months of blood, sweat, and tears. And uh, quite honestly, very shoddy construction, um, but it gave us a place to start. Uh, we were very fortunate at that point as well. Um, being from a small community, a rural community, everybody knows everybody else. So I knew the gentleman on the town board out here. I went and approached them and I asked them, hey, would it be possible for me to basically launch this business uh, from my family farm? And they were great partners as well. Uh, they said, sure thing, anything that you can do to bring in jobs and spur the economy, bring in tax revenue, we're all for. So they actually gave me a conditional use permit for a large scale family business, which allowed us to launch here, which was fantastic. Um, so working with our, our local government, uh, working with friends and family, it all kind of came together in a very serendipitous way. Hey, so, so you... One thing is making this in a lab and teaching a whole bunch of other people, I'm sure difficult people to work with, which is students at that age, but teaching them to do it. And then you go from that to you build out, let's call it the, the lab for now to, to, to build this out. Um, what, how did you address things like uh, capital um, manufacturing in, in, in mass quantities, even though I'm sure you don't have a lot of orders, but you, you were manufacturing in bulk. What mm -hmm. was that like? Yeah. So uh, the first thing I did, I wanted to make sure that it was legal for us to go ahead and do this. So uh, I got a wonderful attorney that I talked with and consulted right away. And I said, hey, John, if I'm going to do this on my family farm, uh, what permits and, regu and regulations do I need to abide to? Bye bye. And my attorney, who's been doing this for a very long time, said, Kyle, you know, in the cosmetics industry, there hasn't been a new law in place since like the late 1930s, which is totally absurd when you think about it, because we've gone through the industrial revolution, the chemical revolution. And what's happened is some of these larger companies have such wonderful lawyers and lobbyists themselves that they pretty much restrict any regulations whatsoever. And so my attorney told me that technically, if I wanted to, we could make all this stuff in a rusty bathtub in my backyard and sell it, which is crazy when you think about it. Um, so that kind of got us off the ground in terms of manufacturing. In terms of capital, I had actually been saving up some money and uh, was thinking about, you know, either buying a home or, I don't know, traveling for a while uh, during one of my summer breaks from teaching. And uh, instead of doing that, I thought, hey, let's do this at the company. So we were self-funded for the first three years from 2015 to 2018. Um, and then 2018 was when we took on our, our first outside round of funding. Wow. When you say we, you're talking about referring yourself to you and the company or you have business partners when you started this? Well, I'm referring to myself in the company. I hate using yeah, terms. No, I, I, I never yeah, worked yeah. for me. So um, whenever I'm talking about uh, myself or the company, I always tend to use the, the term we to be inclusive and, and add my entire team. Um, so yeah, I was the founder. I've got two folks, Greta and David, who've been with me since day one. Um, and they were very strategic hires. And I'm I'm glad that I mapped this all out beforehand. Um, so I realized right away that if we were going to be successful as a consumer brand, that uh, marketing and advertising was going to be key. Um, so the first hire I had was actually my creative director, uh, Greta. Uh, I approached her and said, hey, this is the idea I have. I want to make these products, but I need to figure out a way to make them appealing to consumers. Um, can you help me out? So Greta uh, has been with me since day one, and she's been absolutely fantastic. Anything that we have that's outward facing, be it on the website, on Amazon, in store, social media, wherever else, she's the one that puts it together. And so I think I was really fortunate, kind of dumb luck to kind of reason through everything and figure out, yeah, creative director is going to be my first hire. 
And then my second hire was a gentleman named David, and David's my general manager. So David handles everything in terms of logistics and the back end of our business. So uh, he and I work really well together. Of course, I'm a little bit of an extrovert. I like to go out and shake hands and meet people. I'm a classic salesman, uh, whereas he's a little bit more on the introverted side. He likes to hang back, stay in the office, make sure that we run a tight ship. So it's been a great relationship there. So the three of us have really kind of guided the business uh, since the start. Um, and yeah, I think team, 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 I was, again, very, very fortunate to identify these roles and find these people to fill those roles uh, very early on. I, I, I know, I know we have a, another recording and a separate episode that, that we're going to do, and I don't want to, I don't want to give any spoilers yet on the topic. And I also don't want to go too deep into this next question, but maybe if you could, in, in, a, in a couple words, when do you think it's the right time to consider taking on investors? Yeah, um, that's a great question. And that was something that, again, my attorney posed to me early on as well. He said, Kyle, do you want to build this to be a company that is stable and you pass on to someone as a legacy company? Or do you want to build this to something that, you know, could be national, could be global? Um, the, the choice is yours. He said, if you're going to do something that's kind of smaller scale, kind of on Main Street, uh, kind of very intentional about being and remaining small, then you probably don't need to take on outside investors. But if you have these grand illusions about building a brand that's going to be recognized, you know, nationwide um, or worldwide, then that takes a lot of money. Building a brand is very, very expensive and drains a ton of resources. I'm talking about time, people, money, you name it. So we kind of fell into it. We started off on this path of being a very small business. Um, and then um, because of the strength and the quality of our products, we picked up some rather, rather large clients. I'm talking about like a high V and a Whole Foods. As soon as we got into those two stores, it really seemed like, all right, this is something that we can build as a brand. Now let's start thinking about long-term and what our strategy is going to be and, and what we're going to need to, to grow this thing. So yeah, back in 2018, we were kind of at our three-year uh, mark at that point. And I got to a point where I knew that we were going to need to take outside funding. Now, the first three years, I was a little bit different than everybody else. I realized at that point that a lot of folks were launching brands and basically pouring a bunch of money into digital advertising campaigns on social media platforms. I didn't want to do that. Uh, again, going back to being kind of a classic salesman, working with people, shaking hands. That's what I, that's what I love. Um, so from day one, um, to my typical week here, I would load up my truck with samples and I would go and hit the road. I would go to every grocery store, every co-op, every independent market, uh, chiropractic office and gym, barbershop, any place where I thought our products could sell. I would walk in with a bag full of samples, shake hands, say, hey, try these out and tell you what, in a week, I'm either going to come back, I'm going to give you a call, we're going to make some decisions. So um, we did that for the first three years and that got us into a ton of doors. Um, I want to say I had close to a 90% success rate uh, when I was going and approaching retailers. Whoa. Yeah. And just because I was the guy that came out and did it. I was the founder. Um, and yeah, in 2018, we just, oop, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. So in 2018, uh, we decided that, Hey, we've, we've done enough to establish a really strong foundation here for the brand. We're at that point, we're in maybe 1500 stores. And I thought, all right, now it's time to transition to e-com and, and really be aggressive there. Um, and that's when we brought outside funding. I'm blown away. Like there's some bits that I'm hearing for the first time as well. So like so somebody listening to give some kudos to the, to the podcast host here for staying on track because I could rabbit hole in like 90 different ways from what you just said there. <laughs> that is gold. So, so what about when you're, Oh, so you started with brick and mortar. Like you yeah. didn't just, you didn't start with e-com. So you did it as most people would call it backward. It's not, you know what I mean? But like most people would yep. start with just throw up a website and let's go. Yep. So you started knocking on doors, uh, if you will, going to these places to get your products uh, carried by them. And you, at that time, I know now you have beard bombs, uh, deodorants, and uh, did I see a chapstick in there? I think I saw a chapstick. We've got a ton of products, yeah. Um, yeah. Primarily so, men's grooming, but yep, I don't know. But, but, but at the time, you were at just deodorants when you're knocking on these doors? Deodorants is the big thing. And um, we let our customers kind of dictate what our hero products were going to be. I remember the first grocery store I got into, we got fortunate. I walked in and Told them who I was. And they said, oh, hey, you're local. You're reasonably priced. You're natural. Tell you what, we'll give you an end cap, which is totally unheard of. Most times you have to pay for an end cap to get products on there. 
Um, so this gross partner was absolutely wonderful. Uh, so I set up an end cap and I did a couple in-store demos that weekend uh, where basically I just handed out little trial sizes and some lip balms and all kinds of stuff like that. Um, and then I came back on Monday and checked in and we had a whole assortment of products from, as you mentioned, beard balm, beard oil, hair pomade, aftershave, deodorants. When I came in on Monday, I had put 48 deodorants out on that stand and I think there were only three left. So after that first weekend, I thought, okay, well, we're primarily going to be a deodorant company. This is what people want. This is what we're going to give them. Um, so yeah, we, we learned that lesson the first month we were in business. And, and what, two things there, like what was your, you walked into a store like, uh, and you just asked to speak to the manager, I guess, on the shift, or you asked to be in contact with the owner. Like what was that sales pitch there? And you just said you dropped 48 on an end cap how much are you manufacturing at this point? And you're still manufacturing this at the farm. Yes. Yeah. We were still making it at the farm at that point. And at that point to get 48 on a shelf, that was about all I had on hand. <laughs> so um, it was one of those where it's like, Oh, wow, this, this could be something. Um, and yeah, it was such a, Looking back on it, um, I was so wonderfully naive at that point. I had no idea how grocery stores work. I had no idea who was calling the shots. I had no idea that there were corporate offices. I just thought, hey, it'd be really neat if we got some products on a shelf here. And I think part of that, not knowing what I didn't know and walking in, I, I think people were kind of shocked. They're like, who is this guy? What is he doing here? And, I, and maybe part of it was, let's just get him out of here. Let's give him some shelf space. So like he doesn't come back. Um, so I don't know if I annoyed these people enough or if they really liked what I was into, but um, the sales spoke for themselves. It was crazy uh, how folks came out and supported us, you know, and there had been prior to launching our first grocery store. Uh, we had been in a local paper and there'd been a bunch of stuff that we had done online to kind of raise awareness. And so we brought our own crowd. And I think the, uh, the grocery partners really liked that, that folks were coming in asking for our products. If you're allowed to say, do you remember the name of the first store that said yes? That was Hy-Vee, Hy-Vee right here in, in Madison. So uh, Hy-Vee wow. is, I want to say like 400 stores here in the Midwest. Uh, you'll see anytime you turn on like a baseball game here in the Midwest, Hy-Vee always has like something in the outfield banners or even at a basketball game or a hockey game. So um, it was really cool uh, to get on those shelves. And one of the things I really appreciate about Hy-Vee was, um, and I don't know if they still do it even, but at that point they were empowering uh, their their floor managers to bring in local products, which I think was awesome. Um, and of course, as some of these corporations grow a little bit, that might not be the flavor of the day anymore. But uh, at that point, yeah, if it's local, you have all of, all the power in the world to bring it in. And uh, I found that more and more often. And this again, of course, was you know back in 2015, 2016, the world has changed after COVID and there are a lot more corporate decisions being made now. But I hope we revert. I hope we get back to the point where some of these groceries, grocery stores empower their people again to bring in local stuff. Amen to that. What you mentioned that you let your customers decide sort of what your hero products were, if I'm, if I'm repeating that right, or what your yep. next product lines would be. How are you doing that with you know, with Shopify, with Amazon, like it's, it's very obvious where you can see frequently asked questions and feedback and stuff like that. But how are you achieving that in high V and these brick and mortar stores? How are, how are you, how are the customers letting you know this? Yeah. So a lot of times it's in talking to those same like floor managers, department managers, or even doing in-store demos and seeing who's walking on now, who's picking up our products. Um, I still, uh, with a lot of our local grocery stores here in Southern Wisconsin, I still do my own deliveries because I want to go in. I want to see people. Um, and one of the things that I think really worked out well for us, it's kind of guerrilla marketing. It's kind of marketing 101, but I had a whole bunch of hats, uh, hats printed uh, with our name and logo on them. I understood very early on that a lot of these grocery stores, of course, they're people that work in the store. They have to wear the shirt, uh, but there's really nothing that says uh, anything about hats. So a lot of these grocery stores and independent markets I went to, I would go back to like, I don't know, maybe the deli counter uh, or the meat section, or I'd go back to the bakery and I talked to the folks that had to wear hairnets, especially the guys and be like, Hey, you want a free hat? Oh, absolutely. Um, so I gave out free branded hats to everybody working on the back. So when people are walking through buying their groceries, they're seeing American Providence and it's in their mind. That's free advertising for me to like give somebody a $15 or $20 hat. I'll do that day in and day out just so people see the brand. And I'm always shocked when I see these grocers post pictures online or on their social media channels. And it's somebody from the meat counter that's wearing my hat. Um, 
that's awesome. Um, so I'm trying to do a bunch of low budget stuff and trying to figure out a way for people to see and recognize the brand time and time again. That is amazing, man. I, I absolutely love that. Did you, we're, we're going to get more into like the e-commerce now, but mm-hmm. something I'm hearing throughout all this, you sound like a very savvy business person um, throughout all this, like the hats, like I get that now, but when I first started, I didn't like know that I wouldn't have even thought it was cheap when I first started to get a $15 hat. Um, like did, were you part of any like business groups or masterminds or anything up until this point? Um, or do you wind up joining one that that's really influenced the e-com side of things or any that you're willing to share? Yeah. Um, so everyone here, um, up most constantly knows that I am a huge proponent of the Small Business Development Center, the SBDC. And what you're going to do, that's a nationwide program. You're going to find it on most college campuses. And what it is, it's a taxpayer-funded service to help entrepreneurs get their businesses up and running. So if you're anywhere near an urban center that has a college campus, look for the SBDC Small Business Development Center. I've had the same mentor ever since probably about six months before we launched the business. Um, my mentor, Michelle, has been absolutely instrumental in helping us to get where we're at. And one of the things that she's helped me with is further define and select my mentors. I've got a handful of mentors that I rely on. I ask questions to, it's all very confidential, but they're all wonderful folks that are willing to share from their experiences. What Michelle taught me though, at that point was, you know, when you start a business, they're going to be, everybody and their brother has an opinion or an idea. They're going to tell you what you should be doing. She told me, and I remember this like it was yesterday. She said, those are just opinions. The only good advice you're ever going to get is from people that have been there and done that. If you're going to be successful, you need to learn from folks that have walked that walk and talked that talk. So uh, she did a really nice job of kind of pointing out a few individuals in our ecosystem that would be good for me to connect with. And she made those connections for me, which was awesome. And these are folks that I still meet with maybe once a month or every other month, just sit down and have a cup of coffee and talk about how things are going. For me to buy these folks breakfast, that's nothing uh, for the insight and knowledge that they share with me. Um, so yeah, I firmly believe in, in mentors. I've also I've been very fortunate. We've been a couple different accelerator programs over the years. Uh, one was the G beta program through Generator, uh, which basically helped us in terms of how to put together a pitch deck and how to talk to investors. And then we went down and did the SKU accelerator program, SKU, down in Austin, Texas. Um, that is kind of the premier CPG accelerator in the United States at this point. We were the first company from Wisconsin to get in. And just the the knowledge I gained, not only from the mentors of that program, but from the other members of my cohort was awesome. Um, we were one of, I think at that point, six companies in the ninth cohort and the other founders, we still get together once a month. They have a Zoom chat and they talk about everything that's going on. So we can kind of get the ins and outs of what's going on with our distributors, major retailers, what's going on in terms of online sales, brick and mortar sales, you name it. So having that network of, of folks that are mentors, but also folks that are going through it right now at the same time you are, is very, very helpful. And this network was opened up to you through SBDC, Small Business Development Council? That's correct. Yeah, I preach that. Anybody who's looking to start a business, that's your first place to call. The accelerators, though, those are things that you gained access to through SBDC and you had to apply and you made a certain criteria and then you were able to access. Exactly. Yeah. So um, these accelerators, I was first, um, first introduced them through the SBDC. And then, yeah, just as you said, there had to apply, get the application process, and then be selected for participation. Okay, so so it's equally amazing, but I I, I wanted to bring that up because I think anyone listening to this, even me, I'm I'm hearing all this, and I was like, well, I, I just wasn't born as smart as this guy, you know what I mean? Like, so, so so like you 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 did, you just applied yourself, and you went out there, and you learned, and you realized there's things you didn't know, and you just you you got in front of the right people. So that I mean, I think that's equally as impressive as being born with it. Oh, <laughs> but, well, uh, thanks. Yeah, that that that's awesome. What e-commerce. So you started, you know, air quote here backwards, going with brick and mortars. Now, what, what do you what do you do next? So you do you you went into Shopify or did you go into Amazon? Yes, yeah, so we went into Shopify first. So um, I also preach. Why, not, why not WordPress? By the way, like why not a different site? Like how did you land on Shopify? Well, we tried WordPress. Uh, WordPress was the first site we were on. And then we realized very quickly that WordPress is a great platform if you've got a business on Main Street and you're not looking to ship things nationwide. 
WordPress is a, it's a great platform, again, um, just to post information and resources. But if you're looking for analytics, if you're looking for information and for more information on who's actually buying your products, Shopify, Shopify, Shopify. The analytics information that Shopify provides is second to none and is so far ahead of all these other platforms. It's not even fair. So if you really want to boil down and, and understand who your consumer is and what their habits are, you have to have a Shopify site. Um, and just the, the insights that we've learned over the years. And I'll give you an example here. Uh, we've learned that we've got two very different customers depending upon where they buy our products. You know, based on our own surveys, own information and talking to folks, we find that uh, generally it's about a 70-30 split. So what I mean by that, at brick and mortar, 70% uh, of our customers are women. And why is that? It sounds sexist and stereotypical, but a lot of women still make the purchasing decisions for a household. When I ask guys, hey, what kind of deodorant do you wear? Oh, I don't know, whatever my wife picks up. That happens time and time and time again. So again, it's 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 dated, um, but it still holds true that if the woman in a household is buying for the entire household, she's buying products for her husband and her kids as well. So again, what we find at brick and mortar is that 70% of our customers tend to be women. You jump online, it's just the opposite. 70% of our clients tend to be men. And that's both on Amazon and on our Shopify platform. Reasons for that, um, there is still this, it's kind of goofy, but there is still this intimidation factor where guys, they don't want to walk down or be seen in the aisle of the grocery store. They don't want to be seen next to the condom or the lube or the tampons. That's taboo. But tell you what, they'll, they'll jump in their car and they'll order our, product, order our products off their phone or when they get home from their computer and have them delivered right to their door. So um, that for me has been really fascinating and to really dive in and understand that our customers are different depending upon how and where they purchase our products. I muted myself real quick because I, I, I caught every now and then I just started <laughs> talking and you're looking at me like, oh my God, hey, <laughs> have you ever known, have you ever been able to dive in just out of curiosity, like the 70% the on your site that buy are, are they also those married guys or do they happen to be like, those are the single guys that don't have, you know, uh, so, you know, the woman or their wife in charge of the buying decisions of the house? The vast majority tend to be single guys. Uh, that's for sure. Yeah. So it's, it's fascinating. I mean, to understand how a household budget works and how little has actually changed over the years in terms of who manages the finances. It's crazy. And that's a, that's a whole, that's a whole other discussion in terms of concern behavior and habits. Was there any advantages you had when you launched on Shopify? Like, were you able to leverage any of the stuff you had um, in the brick and mortar? Or did you do anything else on your packaging? Because I'm assuming previously you didn't have anywhere to even direct them because there was no site. Yep. Um, so what we did, uh, we did have a, a locator on our website so people find out uh, where products were basically found. Um, and we've been very intentional about our strategy with our online sales compared to our brick and mortar sales. Online, on our own website, and even on Amazon, our products are going to be a little bit more expensive than they are at the uh, at shelf. Reason for that, I want to encourage folks to pick up our products when they find them at a given retailer to encourage that velocity, to have people grab our products and, you know, kind of become users over and over again. Um, so for us, yeah, we've been very intentional about that strategy being a little bit higher priced online as compared to, to brick and mortar. What, what about uh on your site now since you're you're willing and able to accept sales on your site on shopify and get the email address and all that there are you still trying to be front and center about hey find us at these stores and is that more for a business strategy or is that more for you as a marketing expense if you will like showing hey store i'm advertising for you and i continue to do this even though i sell it on my site that's exactly it. Uh, what we want to do, we want to push people to our brick and mortars. So we'll even advertise for folks if there are sales or promotions from our retail partners. Hey, find our products here and pick up our products when you're in store. So we try to help out our retail partners as much as possible on our own site and on our social media channels. For me, I would prefer to sell our products at brick and mortar over our own site. Um, I really want that experience. And people with a product like ours, I want them to have it in hand, uh, smell it and kind of understand what it is and then put it in their cart. Um, some of the things that we focus on at American Providence, we've been doing this for a long time because this was, this is some insight that I heard from uh, a former employee of Procter & Gamble. And he was talking about two things that are very important when they when take a look at a, a brand for a, a possible merger acquisition. And they talk about FPI and SPI. And at first I was like, what are you talking about? I have no idea what these are. 
Um, and he broke it down and said, first product impression and second product impression. First product impression. Why would someone actually pick up a product in the first place? Why would they put it in their cart? It has to be appealing. It has to elicit some type of emotional response. So that's all about branding and advertising and marketing and how you position yourself. So we've always been very intentional to make sure that our products seem to be a little bit more elevated or sophisticated than our competitors. A lot of our competitors have very kind of like goofy, sophomoric, uber masculine marketing. You've seen it. Um, where we try to get away from that. Uh, I've got folks that have told me, guys that have said, hey, you know, whenever I have guests over to my house, I always put my like personal care products away because I'm embarrassed. I don't want them to be seen. Where I bought your stuff because it looked cool and I keep it out. I didn't even realize it was natural and better for me until I brought it home. That's awesome. That bleeds into SPI, second product impression. How does the product actually work? How does it perform? Would someone be willing to buy it again? And this gentleman from Procter & Gamble said time and time again, they see all these brands out there that they'll get one right. They'll either get FPI right or they'll get SPI right. So either the brand will look awesome, but the performance will suffer, or uh, the people that are putting together a fantastic product have no idea how to market it. So we've been very intentional kind of keeping both those considerations in mind with every single product we put out. Does it meet both our FPI, our own internal FPI and SPI um, kind of um, Kind of rankings. So many people, I'm going to say most people get that wrong. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Most people get that just flat out wrong. And it's sort of a stalking. I'm, I'm going to say like almost the Amazon example of that is amazing product, but, and that might do the, the, the SPI, but bad, 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 criminally bad imagery, no marketing, you know what I mean? Like nothing going on there. You, you have to nail both of them. I love that you said that. that that's going to be the snippet on what I put out there to promote this episode, like what you just said there. That, that is gold. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah. I stole that from Procter & Gamble. So, you know, yeah, we'll, if they're we'll using it, you're taking the, you're taking the time out to do this. You deserve it. We're going to put your name on it. There you go. I mean, when I, when I heard him talk about this and I wish I could remember the gentleman's name, it just seems so simple. I thought, oh my God, like there are some very intelligent people that have put this presentation together and they get it. They understand it. Uh, and to be able to break it down into that simple of a format, I think that would help any entrepreneur out there that's looking to launch a CPG product. We're, we're going we're gonna to add Amazon into this mix yeah. now, but what, where do you feel like you've got the most impactful feedback about your product? Brick and mortar your Shopify, kind of like your own terms of service with them or Amazon, which we know is there's, there's reviews and there's frequently asked questions, but a lot more restrictive on how you can communicate with them. Mm -hmm. I think the best feedback we've had has actually come through our own website um, through our Shopify platform. Uh, Cause I think people that leave reviews either have to be mo really motivated one way or another um, in a very positive way or in a very negative way. You never really see anybody post something a review that says, Oh, this product was okay. You know, it's either it was excellent or it was terrible. Um, and one of the things that's uh, frustrating for me with Amazon is we've done all we can to restrict resellers. Unfortunately, you know, a lot of companies deal with this where you have folks out there that somehow require your products and then resell them. And there's always going to be issues with fulfillment or product quality or dated uh, materials or whatever else. And what's unfortunate on Amazon, a lot of the more negative stuff we receive isn't related to anything we've done at all. It's entirely related to reseller behavior, but the end consumer doesn't know that. So they're posting a bad review uh, regarding us or our products when realistically we had very little to do with that. That was all the reseller that either wasn't fulfilling or wasn't living up to their expectations or shipping products that were not what was advertised. So I think our best, most authentic feedback comes from our Shopify site because it's folks that actually buy products direct from us. Whereas Amazon, you kind of got to take with a grain of salt. So you're receiving feedback good, bad, and other on your site for Amazon transactions. Yep. That's correct. Okay. And you're noticing that a lot of this had to do with just some random like reseller or arbitrage going on between the, the stores and online. Okay. So what was that a motivator? Was that like your motivator to start selling on Amazon? You're like, well, if, if, if people are just going to get this and flip it, like I might as well be the one that kind of tells the story here. That's exactly it. Um, we've noticed that we had tons of folks selling our stuff on Amazon. We figured out that there were two of our 
former distributor partners that really specialized in selling to Amazon resellers. Uh, we terminated those relationships and decided, hey, uh, this is not something we want to continue. We want to write our, like you said, we want to write our own story with Amazon. The only way we can do that is by controlling the narrative. So now since, gosh, since 2019, we've been very, very aggressive with Amazon. We've continued to grow our sales on Amazon. Gosh, let's say maybe 15 to 20% quarter over quarter. Um which we're still just a very small fraction of the overall deodorant uh, sales market on Amazon, uh, but we'll take it. We do have the top rank, but truly uh, scented deodorant on Amazon, which is wonderful. We'll take that. Um, but there's always room to grow. And Amazon, I, the way I talk about Amazon is as, as a necessary evil. It's one of those platforms that you really need to be on. A lot of folks don't realize it, but Amazon now is the world's second largest search engine just behind Google. So there are a lot of folks that use Amazon not only to shop, but also do their research and find out more about the products they're going to buy. So if you're not on that platform or you're not actively advertising on that platform, you're losing out. So um, what we've done, we've actually shifted our focus and a lot of companies have done this over the course of the past year or so. I think the writing was on the wall uh, with uh, iOS 14 and Apple's decisions regarding privacy. When you take a look at uh, Facebook stock prices over the course of the past year and their layoffs from just this past week, a lot of folks have decided that, hey, it's just too expensive and there really isn't the ROI where there used to be uh, advertising on these social media sites. So I think a lot of folks who may have previously spend, been spending on Facebook or Instagram or Snapchat or YouTube or wherever else, they're now taking those budgets and dumping them into Amazon. And so I think Amazon is going to continue to be a much more competitive landscape as more and more brands uh, move away from digital advertising and go all in on Amazon for their e-com sales. Are you able to share like, doesn't, I don't want to put you on the spot for like an exact, definitely not a specific number, but like a percentage or in other words, like what percentage of sales is Amazon for your business and, and maybe what percentage of your ad budget do you dedicate for Amazon? Yeah. So I'll give you some rough ballpark figures. Um, so in terms, works, of, our overall, yeah. <laughs> in terms of our overall wink, sales, just wink. Just wink, yeah. In terms of our overall sales, uh, we're very fortunate in that we're split about 50-50, meaning 50% of our sales occur at brick and mortar retailers, 50% occur through our online channel. Through our online channels, roughly, gosh, at this point, maybe 75 to 80% occurs through Amazon, and uh, the remaining 20 to 25% uh, occurs on our own website. So we're really pushing folks towards Amazon and we did the same thing. We actually terminated all of our paid digital advertising back in late May of this year. Um, so we haven't spent a dime on a digital ad since the end of May. And what we've seen, we've- Off Amazon. Off of Amazon, yep. So we, re we reallocate everything we were spending on Facebook and Instagram to Amazon. So now Amazon is where we spend the bulk of our advertising dollars. What we shoot for is right around 30% uh, of our product price is dedicated towards marketing and advertising. That's kind of where we want to be. We measure that uh, on a weekly, monthly basis and always kind of keep, uh, keep on top of that. If we exceed 30%, we can do that for a few days, but we really want to get to that 30%. We can drive it even lower down to 20%. I'm happy with that. When we're talking about a new product launch, that's going to be upwards. That's going to be 50, 60% because you just want to get your product out there and get eyeballs on it. Uh, but over time, of course, you want that again to level out to get that roughly 30%. I think that's a pretty good um, measure for just about any CPG product out there. Heck yeah. What I, I meant to say this when we were talking about Shopify and your site, it's gorgeous. I mean, the, well, thank you. your creative director, it's gorgeous. The marketing eye that I have also can tell that there's some stuff set up on this site that seems like it's beyond the scope of just creative. Um, also yeah. looking at your, your Amazon, you know, I'm, I mean, gorgeous. I still call them headline ads, but your sponsor, I mean, all, all your ad placements, everything's really nice. I see you're utilizing posts. Like this is, this is like the poster child of like perfectly run Amazon business. You mentioned Facebook ads, Instagram. So my mind's jumping to, you're not doing all this in house, right? Like at what point did you decide to hire freelancers? Did you just learn all this or like what? Yeah. So uh, we've outsourced most of this for the past, gosh, four, almost five years. And what we've done is we've used a number of different agencies and organizations to help us out. Um, I think one of the things that I've told other founders over the years is that 
you don't you don't feel obligated to stick with the same uh, partner, your digital advertising partner and digital marketing partner long term. Uh, there are some groups that are very good for early on just to help you set up your store. There are some good groups that are very good to help you maintain and other groups that are very good to help you grow. Um, two things that I've learned over the years, number one, and you know, I share this because I was a victim myself, never, ever, ever sign a long-term contract. Um, any good business out there that's doing advertising will be willing to go month to month. If they're not, they're not worth the paper that that contract is written on. So never, ever, ever sign a long-term contract with any type of digital marketing agency. We just got uh, another clip there. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, month to month. And again, if they're not willing to do that, uh, they're not worth working with. Um, and then in terms of costs, um, I've been able to negotiate costs down in terms of a lot of these groups will come up with a figure, say hey, their standard operating figure. Hey, we're going to charge you 10 grand a month to run your Amazon. Well, that's great, but it's not going to work for me. I'll tell you what, I'll pay you five grand and then I'll pay a percentage of sales. Um, and a lot of groups are willing to work that way. If they're not, again, probably not work, worth, worth working with. Um, a lot of the best Amazon agencies out there um, now charge anywhere from, let's say, three to $8,000. If you're paying 10 grand a month and upwards, you might want to reevaluate that, uh, that relationship. Um, there are a lot of folks out there that will pitch something and say, hey, this is worth 25 grand a month. It's never worth that much. Um, yeah. So I try to stick with that sweet spot between three and eight grand a month for an, an Amazon agency. Kyle, you're like, you're like, uh, like, like kindred spirit. Like, I feel like if I, if I just gave you a script to say everything, like it would be everything that you're saying. Like, I love what you're saying. There's some people that know me like really well, and I'm going to be with in like masterminds and trade shows next week. They're going to be ribbing me, man. They're going to be like, how much did you pay that guy to say this? <laughs> well, it's been, it's been learned with, uh, with years of experience. That's for sure. And again, I've made my fair, fair share of mistakes. And I think part of being a really good business person is being willing to share those mistakes. Uh, so that other folks don't have to go through that same experience. I mean, I'll sit down with anybody, talk with anybody, tell them what we've been through tell them who I would not recommend working with, who I would definitely work with. Um, and that's something that if you're, if you're really conscious about it, and I think if you're looking to help other folks like we are, you're going to be open and willing to share that. Um, I've had conversations with folks who have thrown folks, thrown stuff by me saying the same thing, like, hey, I've got this great group that, you know, they say they can 10x my Amazon sales and they're only going to charge me 25 grand a month. Whoa, stop. That's crazy. That's way too good to be true. Like, Think about what you're saying. That's not realistic in any way, shape, or form. Like they are selling you a, a, a this crazy plan that is never going to work. Um, we'll, we'll source your products for you. We'll think for you. We'll send them to FBA. We'll do everything. Yep. Yep. And we'll 10x yeah. your sales and we'll charge you 25 grand a month. That's a deal. And here is my Lambo. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I hear you. What, um, the Amazon sellers that, that are just purest Amazon sellers that listen to this, you know, what, they would, they would just crucify me if I don't ask this. So like what, what strategies, if any, do you have? Because a lot of these Amazon sellers, they start and they want to rank a new product and they don't have an email list. They don't, they don't have a following or a brand or anything like that. Um, in this case you do. So like in this case, even without the brick and mortar, there's the Shopify, which is easier for, I think a lot of listeners to wrap their head around. Um, you have the Shopify, you have this email list. Did you, did you have any creative strategies? Did you leverage that in any way? when you go to launch a product? Yeah, we do. Um, so uh, going back to my creative director, she's the one that really drives everything on Amazon in terms of our imagery and our content. And she works with a whole bunch of other folks like outside photographers, videographers, um, and same thing. Um, Greta has been wonderful in terms of selecting partners that are reasonably priced, looking to build their own portfolios, looking to build their own business out rather than just charging an arm and a leg. Um, oftentimes we can get a high quality Photoshop done that includes uh, both uh, pictures of whatever item we're selling along with lifestyle imagery, everything else for 500 bucks or less. Um, if anybody's charging you more than that, like you might want to reevaluate that. Um, so she's done a really nice job. There are a bunch of really good sites out there, like even Fiverr. You can jump on Fiverr and you can find some freelancers that are willing to do really good, high quality work at this point. Um, a lot of these folks you know, may work at larger agencies during the course of the week, but uh, have their own freelance stuff where they do pretty much the same work for a fraction of the cost. So a lot of that outsource stuff that we do, we hardly, if ever, will use an agency. We'll find independent contractors to do it. I'm here. I'm like furiously jotting down a note when you said that, because like, I, I'm, I haven't even said this before, but I'm launching a, 
that is such a, like a pet peeve of mine of people like overpaying and, and just killing their businesses, like death by a thousand cuts with some of these things that, that what you're saying there, I decided to start an entirely other podcast, which, you know, I don't know the name yet, but it seems like it's going to be something like freelance superhero. And I want to just interview the actual, like some of these freelancers that do this amazing, affordable work. So like, I, I furiously jotted down while we're talking and I'm like, follow up with Kyle to see if he has any freelancers he recommends. So I would, I plug them, but, but I know how you could pop. Some people might be, and it's like, Hey, I don't want this guy to get overloaded with work. You know, like I need to keep him close to the best. So exactly. he's, my guy. The, he's, he's my, my guy. guy. <laughs> right. Um, all right. So I, 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 if I, if I don't start bringing this to a close, I don't think I'll ever, uh, I'll ever shut up on this. And I definitely really, really want you to come back on the show to talk about the other topic that I think is equally as exciting um, and, and probably equally as impactful to mm -hmm. most people listening to this. Um, I was hoping I'd see you in PLMA when I, <clears throat> when I, when I saw it. So that'll be the only hint I give. Um, thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, of course. To share everything that you're sharing, uh, to continue doing what you're doing um, before freeing you up to do everything you want to do for the rest of the day. Something I ask all the guests on the show. Um, what is your favorite book and why? Sure. Um, Rocket Fuel, without a doubt. And I don't know if anyone else has shared that on the show, but uh, Rocket Fuel is kind of my business Bible. And for folks that aren't familiar or haven't read it, what it does it basically talks about kind of key or essential roles in terms of building a business. And those two key roles, one is the role of a visionary, which is the role that I occupy for our business. I kind of get to see where we're at, uh, put together a plan and a strategy and a vision for the next five, 10, 15, 20 years. I get to be the guy that kind of decides which direction we're going to go and how we're going to get there. The other role is that the integrator. And the integrator is the person that basically takes all the crazy ideas the visionary has and says, yes, either that's possible and this is how we're going to execute it, or no, that's going to be very challenging. That's something that we shouldn't do. So I've been very fortunate in our business where, again, I get to be the visionary and David and Greta are both my integrators. So I get these ideas that I want to try to figure out how we can, how we can execute. Uh, Usually at 2 a.m., Right. Yeah, it's right. AM. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, then it's followed up by a, a furious email, but uh, no, that I, I run these ideas by them and I say, how can we do this? Or is this something that's even possible? And they're the ones that really like dig in and figure it out. Um, oftentimes I've said it before, it's not the conversation here today, but um, visionaries tend to be like extroverted, outgoing, the folks that are out there pushing. Um, whereas your integrator, that tends to be someone who's a little bit more introverted, someone who wants to be behind the scenes, someone who actually wants to run the business, do the day-to-day -day stuff. Um, so Rocket Fuel has been something that since I first found out about it through the SBDC and shared it with my team, our company culture, the way we function, how we work together has changed dramatically because by reading that book together, we then understood our own roles. We understood, hey, which lane we're in and which lane we should, which, is, which lane we should stay out of. Because I think early on, you know, perhaps we got a little bit of trouble when I would try to be an integrator. I would try to do too much. Or David and Greg would try to be visionaries, try to like figure out what the future holds and what it looks like. Now that we understand the roles we occupy and how we work together, our company has become that much stronger. And I've shared this book with countless other entrepreneurs and I hear it time and time again. Thank you for sharing that book. Uh, that book, by the time me and my employees read it, now we understand how we're supposed to work together and how this is going to be a successful, successful venture. So yeah, Rocket Fuel by far is my favorite book. Uh, I'm ordering it right after this. It seems like it, it's similar to a, a, a different book I read called Traction, like the whole EO. Same author. And all that. Yeah. Oh, same author. Same author. Do you know, yeah. do you know Wickman? Yeah. Yes, I got it. Somewhere. I think so, yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm definitely getting it. I didn't even know there was another one, but it, yeah, that's phenomenal. That's had a massive impact. Um, in my business and a lot of my friends' businesses who are listening to this. Um, yep. All right. I, I should have said this before the book, though. How, how can people get a hold of you? Um, uh, where yes. are you most active on social media? Like, And when they hear the next episode, this is where I, I warned you that I think we're going to have like a hug of death situation. Uh, so be <laughs> careful what contact you share out right now. 
Sure. Uh, I am always willing to talk with anybody and everybody um, who's starting a business. It's one of those things where folks were so good to me uh, in the initial years and continue to be so good to me even now that it's something where I feel like I've got to give back and I've got to share what knowledge, whatever knowledge I've accumulated over the years. So best way to get a hold of me, uh, very simple, just Kyle at AmericanProvenance.com. Um, if you're more of a uh, phone person or a texter, uh, I give out my numbers at 608-338-5953. Feel free to reach out. Um, and then on socials, just Kyle Lafond. Um, same thing on LinkedIn. And I'm more than happy to connect with anybody and then share some ideas. And uh, if you're local or around, I'd love to meet anybody for, for a cup of coffee or a breakfast to kind of help you out and get you on your own path. You're the best, man. Thank you so, so much for sharing everything you did. And I look forward to having you back on the show. Listen here, Carlos. Thank you for having me. Really appreciate it.